you know, I think the thing that you consistent, we consistently hear is, yes, there's some venture capital type things, a lot more interest right now, but they got to see a return on investment. And, and for at least at the beginning, NASA has to be a major player for it. We're, our hope is that over you know, the next several years that we, we become one of many customers as opposed to the customer. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello there, podcasters. If you were looking for an episode on this week's event celebrating the new Space Force Chief of Space Operations, General Chance Saltzman, this isn't it. Instead, this episode is coming to you from the University of Texas El Paso, or UTEP as the locals like to call it. It's a busy campus with more than 24,000 students, plus all kinds of events, like a get-out-the-vote-and-campaign stop for the Texas gubernatorial candidate, Beto O'Rourke, who shook hands and took pictures with students. I came here for the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium's fall meeting. It's a regular gathering that's been flying under the radar for way too long. And I say that because this meeting is where earth moving and house construction companies are in the same room with scientists from NASA and academic institutions. And they're all there to talk about just how we're going to build a sustainable human presence perhaps even a colony of miners on the moon. And by the way, UTEP is the home of the miners and a growing aerospace center, which is funded by NASA and the Departments of Defense and Energy. Later in this episode, we'll hear from NASA's Science and Technology Mission Directorate lead, Jim Reuter. But first, Congresswoman Veronica Escobar dropped by the meeting because she sees the space and defense sectors as key to her district's future prosperity. She's also on the Armed Services Committee. You're going to hear Escobar mention Asan Chaudhry. He's the founding director and associate vice president of the UTEP Aerospace Center. Here's our conversation. It's amazing that you have come by this morning, Congresswoman. Could you please take a moment and introduce yourself and the district that you represent? Absolutely. I'd be uh, delighted to. I'm Veronica Escobar. I'm the Congresswoman for El Paso, which is Congressional District 16. We are right on the U.S.-Mexico border, a community of so much goodwill and uh, optimism and hopefulness. Uh, I love representing this community. Uh, And I stopped by to talk about space. But just take a moment, just because I do have a national audience as well as an international audience. What is your district like? What is what is the flavor of it? What's the what's the the texture of your district? My district is majority Latino, so about eighty five percent of the population in El Paso is Latino. Uh, long roots in our community, deep roots. I'm a third generation El Pasoan. My kids are fourth generation. Uh, I'm a second generation UTEP graduate. My father was a graduate of the uh, University of Texas College of Mines back in the day. Uh, so you're a real miner. I'm a real miner. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and my community is incredible. It's it's historically economically disadvantaged. Uh, you know, we live in a community uh, that is in a state 
that has blocked access to health care, uh, where your uh, public school education depends on your zip code. So we've had challenges. Despite that, we are big dreamers in our community. And every generation uh, that comes uh, after our, our parents, our lives have been made better because of the sacrifices and hard work of our parents. And UTEP, in many ways, um, and this is part of why I'm such a, a big advocate for UTEP, it is a key asset in the community that provides that stepping stone to the middle class and to prosperity for many El Pasoans. And what um, I have tried to do with UTEP and with the, uh, the leaders of the Additive Manufacturing Program and um, uh, Dr. Shadouri, Dr. Ryan Wicker, is to make sure that that talent that we're investing in has a place here at home uh, so that we can grow our economic development, create jobs, and really put that that journey for prosperity on steroids. So let's connect the dots. How does this connect to the sky, to above the horizon and beyond to the moon and Mars? I mean, space is a burgeoning industry right now, both you know primary and additive um, uh, industries. How do you see your district fitting into this somewhat new economy, but that is growing by leaps and bounds? Much of what Dr. Shadouri did started with NASA, with a, a grant from NASA for his students. And what, what has happened in the engineering department in UTEP is that that has grown exponentially. And El Paso fits in not just through UTEP, because we obviously are educating the engineers that will end up working for NASA and for other uh, facets of, of the space industry. Um, but we've got to do more as a community than just educate these young people that are then getting these great jobs elsewhere. Uh, the, the missing link for us has been creating uh, in industry jobs, defense industry jobs, manufacturing jobs that feed into space exploration, for example. Um, and so we've been working with Dr. Chaduri and his team and with small and medium-sized manufacturers. We, we were just awarded as a community the Build Back Better grant, $40 million, to create basically a, a defense industry hub where these manufacturers can pivot away from what they're doing more toward what the future can bring. And so if we can create a supply chain here in El Paso, and we continue to educate these great engineers, my hope is, is that many of these engineers will be hired by the manufacturers and will be innovators and ultimately, possibly, even some entrepreneurs will come from this. So I see El Paso as the future for space. Uh, we are a diverse community. The vast majority of the students in the engineering department that Dr. Shaduri is touching and teaching and growing, they're U.S. citizens who are ready uh, for clearance, for top secret clearance. And um, he is doing more than just growing uh, the brilliance of these college students. He's investing the time and energy to ensure that young kids, elementary school kids, have an interest in STEM and know that they have a place at UTEP and in El Paso. So he's growing that pipeline. As a member of Congress, I want to provide the resources necessary for that pipeline so that we have a great economy, we have great opportunities for our young people, and that we are a player uh, when it comes to space. It's interesting you just mentioned money, and I wasn't really going to go there, but you know, I have you here and you're voting. Um, 
We have the National Defense Authorization Act. We have the Space Force. We have the Defense Innovation Unit. We have the NRO. We have the um, Space Development Agency, which has just been folded into the Space Force. And you're talking about increasing money and defense jobs also here in El Paso. I mean, it all kind of comes together That's in right. that. What do you hope for the Space Force? What do you hope for these different defense space-related things? Um, in terms of, of a plus up in money because I mean at the moment they are such a very minuscule part of the um, Department of Defense budget ask. That's right um, and we really Congress needs to get ahead of this um, and we need to catch up to the innovation and brilliance that well we're seeing. That's exactly right. You know I will tell you every time I get a uh, classified brief briefing about what China is doing uh, it's I know we have a lot of work to do. I serve on the House Armed Services Committee. It is my favorite committee. Uh, I serve on four committees, but that is my favorite committee. Uh, and I, I believe that we can get there and we will get there. In the context of the moon, getting there isn't the present-day challenge. In the last moon race, NASA and its astronauts beat their Soviet counterparts when they planted the flag on the near side of the moon in 1969. That was 53 years ago. And next week, fingers crossed, the ginormous rocket dubbed the SLS or Space Launch System will send the Orion capsule on a maiden, uncrewed test voyage to the lunar neighborhood. We can get there, but the competition this time is China, another communist state. And since 2019, China has seriously proven its moon chops. It's landed a remote-controlled rover, and it's grown silkworms and potatoes on the far side of the moon. It's returned lunar regolith soil samples to Earth, and the plan is to construct a base there on the far side within the decade. The far side is a hard place to get to, but it's where the water is, and there may be other rarities to extract, like helium-3. That's a non-radioactive isotope that may be able to fuel nuclear power plants. So the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium's concept of getting there is really how to stay there on the far side and work at getting to the resources and creating a self-sustaining commercial lunar economy eventually. The consortium is managed by Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Laboratory. The fall meeting draws companies like Caterpillar, miners and geologists, rover and spacesuit designers, and even companies that specialize in building homes, like Icon, which showed us how its machines print. Yes, print with concrete, inch by inch, barracks at nearby Fort Bliss. Austin, um, we're building other structures for people who've lost their homes from, from storms. Um, and we're starting to start scaling these barracks across the country and start really like using this technology, not just for prototypes, but for true scale. Any questions? I like kind of, the shapes you can make. Oh, cool. Like yeah, it's, exactly. So uh, a lot of houses that we build, we live in a world of like right angles, but you yeah. don't need to live like that, right? You can, nature has curves, it has texture. And so we're able to, to use that with architecture. And we're also working with NASA for off-world construction systems. Um, so built, imagine like landing pads, roads, and eventually habitats, and using the lunar regolith to create structures. So what's great about ICON, what we learn on Earth can apply to off-world, especially with like autonomy, and the same with a truly autonomous system, which will have off-world can apply to Earth and get costs down. What's the material NASA's plan is to be the anchor tenant slash customer for this activity on the moon and eventually on Mars to get a better understanding 
I spoke with Jim Reuter, NASA's Associate Administrator for the Space Technology Mission Directorate, or STMD. Here's our conversation. Jim, thank you for making the time to meet with me here on the campus of the University of Texas, El Paso. Yeah, uh, well, thank you, Laura. Uh, it's a pleasure talking with you today. Uh, I've never actually been to the U University of Texas El Paso before, but I've heard great things about it, and I'll say it's, it's really, I, I can see it. There, this is a vibrant university that's really growing. I mean, the students are pretty impressive. I mean, there's lots of students that are getting involved in space here. Yes, and I really like their diversity, the emphasis that they're doing. Um, Jim, you are very well known within space exploration circles. There's not an engineer in this meeting who does not know you. But for those of us who are not rocket engineers, take <laughs> a moment and introduce yourself. Uh, well, okay. Uh, let's see. I've, I'm a longtime NASA employee. Um, I came here in 1983, and so I've got just shy of 40 years at NASA. And, it's been a wonderful career. I've been extremely lucky to be here. Um, I, I've worked a, a large number of different activities. I've been um, in space technology since 2015, and I took over as the lead for, for space tech in 2018. So four years now about that I've, I've been in this role, and it's, it's, it's really a great role as go through it. I've, through my career, it was mostly human space exploration type activities. I um, spent a long time developed the International Space Station. Uh, I was shuttle in, in Columbia, return to flight. I, I managed the um, external tank activities for return to flight, where we tried to keep on foam on a tank. And um, after that, I was deputy propulsion manager for, uh, for a while. In all of those years, you've had a, a lot of consequential months, and this one mm -hmm. is uh, no different in some ways. And this month, you've got two launches, both of which are essential tests of technologies critical to human space exploration. So let's start with the fun stuff, the inflatable. That's slated to launch Wednesday, mm -hmm. the low Earth orbit flight test of an inflatable decelerator or lofted, and please, I hope I'm saying that right. Yes. What is it, and why is it important to sustaining human interplanetary exploration? Yeah, Lofted is, is really a great technology demonstration for us. It's, it's a few years in the making. And uh, the idea is when you go to, um, to Mars and you try to land things, of course, we, have, we land, uh, you know, frequently we land rovers and, and activities on, on Mars, um, but but the, the the landing capability that we have is limited to about one and a half or so ton, metric tons of landing capacity. If you want to go to humans to Mars or large cargo, then it's more like twenty metric tons. And this techno the technology that they work there really doesn't work. So one of those capabilities is to get through the decelerator region. And I should say, um, you know, like the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, so you don't have this problem with the moon. Earth has has a strong atmosphere, obviously. Yeah, very thick, and so it, 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 is, it is challenging, but it also helps you slow down. The problem with Mars, it's kind of almost, I call it anti-Goldilocks, because it's thin enough that, that it's thick enough that causes you a problem and thin enough that it doesn't help slow you down as much. So then one of the ways you, then to slow down, you need a lot of area to create drag. Um, and typically launch vehicles or, or landers are limited by the size of the, the fairing in, a, in the launch vehicle. Well, if you do an inflatable, then you can pack it up uh, into much tighter uh, 
space, and then then you can uh, inflate on orbit. And the, the material that we have there is actually with this synthetic fibers that once it's inflated, it's 10 times stronger than steel and, and has a very high thermal resistance capability. So it's a, it's a way to, to kind of overcome the constraint of the launch vehicle, if you will. And, and so this, the, the lofted demonstration is one of, um, it'll be 20 feet, about six meters in diameter when it's fully extended. And so basically, just so that I can really explain it to the listeners, this wider space, this wider sort of inflated mm -hmm. disc, creates more drag. So it's, it's kind of like using a very big brake. And you need a very big brake yeah. to actually land on Mars because there's just not a lot to in, in the atmosphere to slow you down mm -hmm. when you're trying to land. Yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of a similar principle with, with parachutes and stuff. The lar you get larger parachutes, you can slow down faster and that sort of stuff. And parachutes, though, they don't really work very well at supersonic the, the, speed, And this is hypersonic right? even, yeah. They don't really work until you get more atmosphere and stuff. So in the hypersonic region, a parachute doesn't, doesn't really help. Doesn't do it. And just six days later, after this, this launch of, of this inflatable, there's another launch on November 15th. Fingers crossed the Artemis One mission will take off and prove that the space launch system and the Orion capsule is ready to take Americans back to the moon. I hate to do this to you, but as schedules slip, if Artemis One is a success... Will we see Artemis two launch with astronauts in twenty twenty four? Well, I, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I love the the um, the Artemis one mission. Um, it's enabling for us to go back to the moon and onto Mars, um, and it's a really exciting mission that I've that I've had a chance to to see. Is you know, from a space tech standpoint, we don't we we work closely with them, but not you know we we tend to go the next generation of things. Um, so it's it's exciting for me. Of course, I can't comment on a date. I uh, that's that's for other people. But what I will say is, we will launch when it's ready to launch. And the important thing is is to launch when you safe safely when it's there. Similar, pretty much every launch vehicle goes through a, a period of time where um, where you you um, you, know, you learn how to operate the vehicle as you go through. It. Shuttle certainly did through its history too. That's interesting, because um, I do remember that, just because I am of uh -huh. age, that I do remember, you know, the shuttle launches, you know, being scrubbed and then coming up and coming yeah. forth. How long did it take for the shuttle launches to become more regular? Uh, now you're taxing my memory. Well, <laughs> you know, I was taxing mine, too. <laughs> well, what know, I would say is, you know, I, I, I think we, we, you know, those of us that were around went through both uh, the Challenger accident and the Columbia accident. And one of the things that kind of came out of those investigations is don't fool yourself, it really wasn't an operational vehicle uh, like that. It still had learning that they were doing really through the whole shuttle flight. Now, as they as uh, we became much stronger and towards the end, I think the shuttle was doing really well. Uh, but but it, um, from that standpoint, it really was never really an operational vehicle through its, through its history. Towards the end, it got, it got much more regular, but, but we were still learning. Now, this next question I'm asking is about the SLS, and it's to ensure that my coverage is fair. And truth be told, some of my guests have been critical of the SLS, um, but to a person, they want the SLS launch to be a success, I mean, without so much as a hiccup. But it's expensive, and I mean really expensive, and the rocket engines aren't even reusable. 
So in future, will NASA find or support the development of a more cost-effective launch platform to maintain a human presence on the moon or to go to Mars? Yeah, well, what I would say is my focus on, on space technology is, is to uh, develop the technologies that allow us to get there. The, the launch vehicle itself is a critical part of that. It's not typically one that I... Uh, that I, that I work as closely with, the landers and, and the, the infrastructure, the space infrastructure on the moon, learning how to operate on the moon and going on to Mars, the technologies to get us to Mars, and, and those, those so that's really where I am. That's really where, um, where our role is. Okay. And at the conference we're attending, you know, it's all about mining, in-situ resource utilization mm-hmm. and building. Caterpillar presented their autonomous mining and soil shifting cool. machines. Yeah. Those are fun, right? Yeah. Um, but besides that, you know, Astroport is here talking about building a spaceport on the moon. Igloo is talking about essentially using moon rock or regolith to print lunar mm-hmm. habitats. This has the beginning vibes of a real lunar economy. Yet some of these companies are also saying they need more visibility on just what NASA's plans are for the moon. So so what are NASA's plans for the moon? Well, one of the things we just recently did uh, was went through an exercise, you know, through, throughout the agency on moon to Mars objectives. Um, or, or blueprint objectives. And, and so what we did there is, inter- first we went internally and said, okay, what are the fundamental extras- objectives we have in four major categories? Uh, one was transportation and habitation, one was science, one was operations, and one was infrastructure and stuff. And so for each of those then, we, we had teams that went through and identified the types of objectives that we would try to achieve with this. And, and those are ch- objectives were related to helping to establish a sustainable presence on the moon, as well as then developing the technologies and the operations in order to go on to a mission to Mars and learn learn while we're a few days away from Earth rather than months away and stuff like that. So we, then what we did um, as an agency is we went out to industry for comment feedback, the, the, the academic community, internationals even, and, and went through a couple iterations with that. And then recently at the IAC, at the end of September, um, then uh, at, at that time we released these, and, and so what started as 50 objectives are now 63, and includes some things that are um, that are um, on those that are going towards Mars. You know what we what we'll do for, in order to get to Mars and stuff. So so anyways, the idea behind that is we've gotten the entire community engaged in, as best you know as best we can, and and have documented the types of objectives we have. So now we'll take those objectives that are kind of high-level statements and, and, and identify the, the technology gaps that, that are needed in order to advance, prioritize what we're going to do. And, and so then from that, the whole idea behind this is, is, is those concerns that said, well, okay, we got, we got some flights of Artemis, but how does it all fit together? That's what the intent of this is. I'm going to still keep going on about the commercial sector because mm-hmm. I know that NASA would like the commercial sector to take on more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and that's to give NASA the space to explore and to do the science. But what's the plan to develop an economy strong enough to make that possible on the lunar surface? You know, we, um, it, it, I'll, I'll say this. For, first, our objectives are, you know, for a sustainable presence, we can say what it, what's a sustainable presence mean and stuff like that. And, and so it doesn't necessarily mean, we, we don't think it means that NASA is the only person there. 
right? They're the only paying person there. We really think, what, in fact, part of the charter of my organization is to help enable commercial space. And, and so the reason we're here today with this Lunar Surface Innovation con, uh, Consortium as part of our, we established this initiative back in um, just, I guess, 2020. That's when, yeah, February 28th, 2020 was our was our kickoff for this. And that, and the idea behind it is for us, our part of this, you know, helping the infrastructure and the moon, helping investments for that sort of thing, is is to uh, provide incentives and create partnerships and stuff. And then we we try to reach the entire U.S. Uh, and so with this consortium, we have over 700 organizations that are actively participating on a monthly basis with us. We have all 50 states represented with Guam, Puerto Rico, District of Columbia, and 46 countries and stuff like that. So the whole idea behind this is to have a place where people engage. You've been, you've been listening and stuff. Engage and, and, they, and they talk about their own technologies and their thoughts and stuff like that. And so we really want to try to engage that. Now, we... Uh, through, in parallel to that, we have a lot of solicitations ourselves where we go through and, and, and we give, we, our solicitations are pr pretty typically fairly open on, the, on it. We have general guidelines where we are, they know what our objectives are and that sort of stuff, but then we allow you know, the creativity to, to happen. And so um, for us, then uh, that, and that just creates an excitement uh, that will be part of uh, as we're going forward. So, and then, you know, I think the thing that you consistent, we consistently hear is, yes, there's some venture capital type things, a lot more interest right now, but they got to see a return on investment. And, and for at least at the beginning, NASA has to be a major player for it. We're, our hope is that over you know, the next several years that we, we become one of many customers as opposed to the customer. And that would basically be based on, on on being able to get resources from the moon and from you know the whole cislunar space, and uh, and fuel, uh, you know and other all of these different other things, things too. Uh, you know, uh, LeBron James could be slam uh, slam dunky basketball on the moon or, or something. You know, <laughs> that people who knows what people would do. Uh, so and, and what I'd say then too is is the other thing NASA has done as an anchor for this is they've. Um, Similar the way we've done some things, actually we did in suborbitals, the platforms that are now, you know, commercial business, stuff like that. The commercial crew and cargo, of course, are, are great examples they are always used. But, but also now the commercial lunar, lunar payload services is there, sponsored by, by, um, by the science mission director. It's a great, uh, it's a great activity for us. And it provide, it, it's, still, it's still not cheap to get to the moon by any stretch, but it's, it's helping enable a path to get to the moon with, with you know that a community can reach, or other space agencies can reach. You know the smaller players that are wanting to create a, a space agency. This gives them an opportunity. Kind of like the moon strip mall. I mean, you're the anchor tenant, and then you have other other things that are coming in. Like for instance, I know a fellow who wants to go to the moon because he wants to put a data center there. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to be glib, but in a sense, you are like an anchor tenant, and yeah. you have all these other spin-off mm -hmm. businesses that that should be able to come there, to to be able to work off um, the kind of traffic that NASA would yeah. generate. The the interest is really strong out in the community and, and growing. 
Um, something interesting did bubble up here, though, and that was a question about security from actually one of the presenters. And the question was, how are we going to protect our resources? You know, how do we make sure our assets are secure? And some have said that China views cislunar space as kind of like the South China Sea. You know, build enough islands and you own the space. Regardless of what that international law says, I mean, is there a plan or are, are you working with the interagency to think about these things? I mean, China is there and they can be a bit aggressive. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we embarked on early on in Artemis II is the Artemis Accords. Uh, the idea behind the Artemis Accords is to set norms and standards and, and that you know we work as a community then in, in, with those standards and stuff like that. Uh, and there's, I don't know how many, I, I've lost track of the number of, of, of countries that have signed up, but, but that, the idea behind that is let's get to the point of, of having a cooperative space and, and, really, and really that is an extension of the Outer Space Treaty that's been around since 1966 and has, has been establishing and allowing people to do this. So that, that does not allow people to, to claim space, but you, you know, you, there, there is a, there's an element of it that, that you can, you know, that, that um, not all, not everything we do is all completely friendly. Um, and so um, th that's certainly something that you, we watch out for. Um, and, and work with you know our, our counterparts and, and stuff. We, also, we're, we're just trying to get as, as broad a community engaged um, under a common set of standards. And you know, we we've got an example of how it works: the International Space Station. So um, th that is you know really to me it's a shining example of of, of working across countries. But China did test an ASAT. Mm -hmm. um, Russia did test mm -hmm. in ASAT, India did test in ASAT, and if you were on the space station, it really was many duck and cover moments for when the debris, right. you know, when the space yeah. station passed through the debris field. Are agreeing to a set of norms and standards really going to be enough, especially if you have you, you, a nation that, you know, yeah. seems somewhat aggressive even and, and, on the And what I would say is the, the response to those events has been gone through the State Department, you know, and, and stuff, and senior leaders, and that, that's where the, uh, we, we honor that response. Thank you so much, Jim, for your time. Oh, thank you. And I hope we get to do this again soon. Sure. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.